Nathaniel, after I looked at the toilet paper aisle and saw it was empty yet again, and I said, buddy, you, don't, you still don't have the, the toilet paper. And he told me, a lot of people don't think about this, but you should check Home Depot. I said, Home Depot? You're not talking about sandpaper, are you? Uh, he said, no, Home Depot has toilet paper. It's, it's one ply, but they haven't. I don't know. Is that true? I've, I've never seen toilet paper at Home Depot, but there's a piece of information for us to find out if it's true. I wonder, is that true? But there are other, obviously, more heavy, more pressing questions about what is true in our world right now that, that I've been thinking about this week. And maybe you've been wondering yourself. Questions that, that the world is trying to process through. Is coronavirus as, as awful as some say it is, or is it being overblown? Are all of the authorities and organizations working behind the scenes on this looking out for our best interests, or, or are some trying to gain some control? These, these are hard questions, and depending on which website you go to and which article you read, you may get a different answer. And, and maybe you're feeling like you relate with the Roman governor Pilate as, as Christ stood before him and, and Pilate asked the question in John eighteen thirty eight, what is truth? What is truth? I'm here to tell you this morning, we can look above all the confusion to find out what is truth. We can look at what Jesus had just said that sparked that question from Pilate. Jesus said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me above all the confusion and even in the middle of it we can know that when we look to the words of Jesus that is truth that we can hold on to more than that truth is a person he he said not only the things I say but he said I am the way the truth and the life so if you're looking for truth that you can hold on to this morning I encourage you to look with me to Jesus that's what the Apostle Paul's been doing in the book of Ephesians in this series that we've been looking through. We've, we've been through chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and, and he is showing us over and over again all the blessings that can come to us through faith in Christ. Things like in chapter 1, you remember when we threw out the beach balls with the, these things written on them to the kids back when we still could meet, that, that believers have been chosen in love by God, ad adopted into his family, given the rights of a, a natural born son or daughter, that we've been redeemed from our sin and slavery to sin and Satan. He, he bought us back. Then we got into chapter 2 and, and we read about how by grace through faith in Christ, we're, we're transformed from people who are dead in our sins to now we're raised up with Christ spiritually, seated with him in the heavenly realms. And then chapter 3, he talked about this body of Christ, the church, made up of people of all nations, specifically Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians. And we can draw near to God confidently, no longer in slavish fear, but boldly because of what Christ has done for us. All these blessings are true in Christ. And you remember one of those weeks we said, to avoid drowning in this world of confusion and pain, we've got to put on our, our scuba gear. Only we changed the definition of scuba to this. We need to have a spirit-controlled understanding of blessings assured. A spirit-controlled understanding of blessings assured. To know what God has given in Christ and to hold on to that no matter what is going on around us. That's our, our scuba gear. But now in chapter 4, after going on and on about all these blessings, Paul is going to turn almost as a door on a hinge into, okay, what do we do about it? Because in the Bible, truth always is supposed to lead to life change. Truth comes first, then we change. That's why he, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
One of my Bible teachers said, whenever you come to the word therefore in the Bible, you want to ask, what's it there for? Because it links to something before it. When Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, he's saying everything I've just been talking about, I want you to walk in a way that, that lines up with all those blessings God has given you. Five times in just these last three chapters of the book, Paul's going to use the word walk. Walk is an awesome word for the Christian life because it's not just a, a 30 second microwave cooking. It's, it's the crock pot that lasts the rest of our life. It's a, it's a journey with Christ throughout this life and into the life beyond. Walk is a perfect metaphor because it's, it's a daily moment by moment reality. Eugene Peterson called walking with Christ a long obedience in the same direction. That's far different than just an emotional moment or decision. It may begin there, but it starts this journey. I shared on our church Facebook page that right now a group called Revelation Media is sharing their animated version of John Bunyan's classic, A Pilgrim's Progress. I've, other than the Bible, have never seen or read anything that's a better picture of the walk with Jesus. I'd encourage you to check that out. It has the victory that comes in Christ, the freedom, but it also plays out some of the difficulties that are involved. Whatever the case, it is a walk. And I like what Paul does here. And I, I thought about how he started with the truth and then went to our walk. And I thought whenever we come to the Bible as followers of Jesus, there are four words that should mark a process. I, I sum it up like this. First, we should ponder what we're reading, the, the truth that we're reading, ponder it, think about it, and we should pray on it. We, we saw Paul do that a few times in the first half of this book. Then we should praise God for the truth of that reality, but let's not let it stop there. We ponder, we pray, we praise, and then we practice the reality of what we've learned. There's an interesting word in this verse when Paul says, I urge you, some translations say, I beg you, I exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That word worthy comes from the Greek word where we get the math term axiom. Now, Bill, who read our scripture earlier, is a math professor, and maybe Jaden back here, who's in algebra right now, now, knows what an axiom is. It's when there's that equal sign, and the things on either side of the equal sign are equal to each other. They, they essentially come out to the same worth or weight in another, another analogy. When Paul says walk worthy of the calling to, to which you have received, he's saying you've seen all these blessings in God. Now your walk should be a walk that, that walks with that in mind. It, it's a powerful picture. Klein Snodgrass said, the trouble sometimes for us is we've received a million-dollar blessing from God, but we give him a nickel response in the way we live our lives. Karl Barth said it this way, in, in the Christian life, religion is grace, and ethics, how we live, is gratitude. What's he saying? The way we live ought to be in obedience and faithfulness to Christ out of gratitude for all that he's done for us. This led me to some questions about my own life, and maybe you could think about them for, for yourself. If uh, an innocent spectator or just a casual bystander looked at your life and knew your calling, if they knew all the blessings you've received in God, how would they expect you to live in light of that? Or let's flip it. If a spectator saw how I lived, what would they assume I'm called to? There's one more important idea in this verse here. Paul says he's a prisoner for the Lord. That's not just 
figurative language. He was actually under house arrest when he wrote these truths, and yet he remained faithful to God. I think it adds some weight when he says, walk worthy. And I think about him sitting under house arrest, probably chained to a Roman soldier, still being faithful. And I ask myself the question, how much or how little does it take to get me off the faithful path with Jesus? Because here he is sitting under house arrest, still walking the walk. But he's going to go on to challenge him. What does this worthy walk look like? And, And two things that are really important to him in the body of Christ You should promote unity and peace with the other members of of the body of Christ. My son Evan just turned 11 this week, and Evan loves juicing things. He's been using our regular old blender, which doesn't always work that great. So this week for his birthday, he got a juicer. And for the past three or four days, we've had five or six different kinds of juices or smoothies, whatever you want to call them. And he found out that one of his favorites from Robex, the hummingbird, he, he found out the ingredients. To make a hummingbird smoothie, you got to put in some strawberries, some bananas, some orange sherbet, and some other stuff. We tried it last night, and it was awesome. If you want a hummingbird, you got to put in specific ingredients. If you want unity and peace to characterize your relationships, Paul's going to show us at least four ingredients that have to be a part of our lives. I'm going to go into those ingredients right here in verse 2. He says, with all humility, there's one, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You get humility, gentleness, patience, and love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want to walk through those four ingredients It's one thing to say the words. It's another thing to understand them and and live them out. Humility. The Jews appreciated this because they knew of this almighty creator God who they were not and they worshiped. But the Greeks at this time, like many people in our world, looked down on humility. How am I supposed to be humble and make it in this dog-eat-dog world? If I'm humble, the the world's just going to run me over. The, The Greeks at this time saw it almost like groveling, like only if you're a slave should you grovel like that. Other people, no way, it's, it's beneath you. Then Jesus came along and changed everything, right? What did he say? Whoever would be great among you must become the servant of all. And, and he lived that out. He showed us that the Lord of the universe, the greatest of all, would, would wash our feet. Humility is the correct view of yourself. Do we have a correct view of ourselves? On the one hand, I'm not a valueless worm. But on the other hand, you know what? I'm not God either. The the universe does not revolve around me. Tim Keller broke down humility, and I'm going to paraphrase him. He said, it's understanding that apart from from God and Christ, you're a far more degraded sinner than you could even imagine. But because of God and what's been done in Christ, you are far more loved and accepted in relationship with Him than you can ever imagine. One man said it's a, it's a reminder of our creatureliness, that we are created beings. There's an old hymn that says it this way, "'Tis thou preservest me from death and dangers every hour. I cannot draw another breath unless thou give me power." It's, it's realizing every breath we breathe is dependent upon our Creator. It's also putting others before ourselves. When I dated Carolyn more than 20 years ago now, I remember at their house on the wall, they had an acronym for joy. Joy acronym was Jesus, others, then yourself. I like that. I think if if we're humble, we will live that way. We will put Jesus first, then others before our own interests, and then ourselves. And, And that is the path to joy. But it's so easy not to be humble, because why? 
all of us, including myself, uh, on our own, we're, we're inclined toward pride. Sometimes we really do believe it's all about us. It's the little things that can start big divisions. One, one man I read this week shared of a church split that got so bad, it, it went first to secular court, which it should have never done. Paul tells us that in Corinthians. But then after the secular court threw it out, it went to a church court, which decided that one of the two parties would get the church building and the other group would have to start a, their own building somewhere else. But as they explored the roots of the split, you know what they found started the ball rolling? They were having a meal at church one week, and one of the elders was offended because a, a kid sitting next to him got a bigger piece of ham than he did. <laughs> what pride. And, and because he, he probably failed at some point when confronted to say, hey, I'm sorry, that was silly, that was stupid, it, it turned into a church split. We got to be humble if we're going to have unity. Gentle. What is gentleness? Sometimes we hear that and we say, what does that mean? I got to be like some kind of weak pansy? I don't want to be gentle. I want to be strong. Well, the biblical picture of gentleness actually means strength under control. It's a, it's a big, strong horse that is now under control and able to be useful. A few years back before Shamu was removed from SeaWorld, I would think of Shamu every time we'd, we'd go there and you see that giant orca whale next to this tiny little human being. And you see the awesome power of that whale. And yet that, that human was able to, to train him and, and ride him and, and have him jump when they said jump and all sorts of things. Wow, what strength under control. Never once did I look at that whale and say, that's a weak animal. But I would say, wow, look at how gentle that big, strong thing is. Gentleness is that. It's strength under control. One man said it's the idea that you're angry when you should be and never when you're not. What's that mean? There are times to be angry, especially when someone we love is, is being hurt by someone else or, or God's ways are being violated. There are times not to be angry as when I'm in traffic and someone accidentally cuts in front of me. Why? Because I've probably done the same thing many times myself. I, I think about Jesus. We, we have a Savior who, who had this down perfect. He, he knew when to bend down and sit with a sinner face to face in the dirt, look her in the eye. But he also knew when to go into the temple and flip tables over because the religious leaders were corrupting everything about God's worship. It's that balance. There's also patience, though. We got to be patient with each other, with, with each other's faults. And that starts when we really realize that I've got plenty of my own, too. Do we know that, that, that we're not always easy to, to live with? I do. Uh, Chrysostom said it this way. He said it's having a largeness of soul. And I thought about that, and I, I try to bring it into language that I understand. I, I imagine that we each have this, this garbage bag. And every time someone around us does something annoying or that gets on our, our nerves a little bit, it's like they put something in that bag. And largeness of soul means we have a big bag. But before that thing rips and explodes everywhere, it's able to hold a lot of stuff. Some of us have a really tiny bag. <laughs> One annoying thing goes in there, blam, it breaks and, and there's anger everywhere. How, how large is your soul? How large is your patience? It's a key for unity and peace. And last but not least, love. And biblical love here is not just a feeling. It's a choice. Agape love is a, a choice from the will to say, I'm going to choose the good of that other person, whether they deserve it or not, and even though it costs me greatly. That's biblical loves, love. And I thought about this week, maybe, maybe some of you are finding new places to 
practice these virtues because we're we're all on lockdown, right? It, it's it's when you're in close quarters with people that these things uh, are really tested, right? Maybe maybe in your home you're spending more time under the same roof. That's where it's tested. Uh, we had a moment this week where where Carolyn was working with the older two boys on their schoolwork at home. And our younger son, Luke, found a table with an empty glass on it and pushed the table over. And the glass broke. And short, just a, a moment or two before that, uh, uh, the doorbell had rung. And I, I went outside to talk with someone who was coming over to talk. And it's with all that stuff going on that these things are tested, right? So practice them in your home this week. When, when we get to come together, Lord willing, in a few weeks back in the church, we're going to have to practice them there as well. But this love thing, man, people look everywhere to figure out what is real love. I read a funny story this week about a guy flying and he wanted to get a book about love in the, the airport bookstore. So he found a book called How to Hug. He got on the plane and he was disappointed when he realized he had picked up the fifth volume of an encyclopedia set. <laughs> People are looking everywhere for advice on love. What I, what I want to tell us is we have the perfect picture of love in the Bible. It's Jesus. You want to know what love looks like? Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and pray for him to live that out in your home, in your church. So he wants us to have unity. He wants us to have peace. But there's got to be a, a reason to be unified in the church. What is it? What is it? Well, he's going to go back to basics. Sometimes it takes going back to the basics to unify us. We, we often get caught up on little secondary uh, issues that divide us, and we forget about the basics that unite us. I think of basics, and I think about the great football coach, Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers. Just read a story about him this week. They were one of the greatest teams ever. They, they had been to the pinnacle, but after being to the pinnacle, they, they had another season where they lost a tough game. And he wanted to bring them back to what they needed to remember, and he didn't have much to tell them about the details because they had been there, done that. But what he did is he grabbed a football, and he said, Gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> and one of the guys in the group who knew what he was getting at said, Slow down, coach. You're going too fast. He was going back to the basics, football. I think about the story about a, a captain on a ship. He was well-respected for years and years and years. And, and he had this box during his sailing years. It was this old wooden box. And the sailors would see him all the time going up and opening the box and pulling out this piece of paper. And, and then he would put it away inside the box. And after he died, the, the sailors said, I wonder what's in that box. So they finally opened the box. And, and, and on that piece of paper, it said, port equals left, starboard equals right. <laughs> he, he was constantly reminding himself of the basics. We need to remember the basic things that unite the worldwide body of Christ together. That's why... Seven times in this next verse or two, he's going to use the word one. There is one body. There's one worldwide church of God and Christ. We're, we're all united. There's one spirit, one Holy Spirit that puts us all in that body and, and holds it together. Just as you were called to one hope, hope that, that one day we'll be transformed like Jesus, that we'll get that inheritance he's promised us, that unites us. One hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. There's only one Lord. It's Jesus. One faith. Now, the scholars are divided on what does faith mean. It, it can mean what we believe, like our creed, our doctrine. When you think about all the truth in the Bible, that unites us. This is not a unity without truth. It comes back to that. Rich Mullins talked about all that truth, and he said this. He said, I did not make it. No, it is making me. The truth of the Bible makes us, shapes us, and unites us. But that word for faith can also mean our trust in that. That's another thing that unites us. One baptism. One baptism. We, when we're baptized in that water, we express our allegiance to Jesus, to the world. 
one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Those are the basics. Now you can dive deep into any one of those, but those are the things that unite true Christians. That last one in particular is comforting right now. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now more than ever, we need to believe in that one God who is sovereign still. William Barclay said it this way, we live in a God-created, God-controlled, God-sustained, God-filled world. We need that to hold on to right now. The author of Proverbs put it this way in chapter 21, verse 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Right here in particular, the God and Father of all is brought out. He's the God and Father of all, not just in the world in general, but in his church. But these are the things that unite us together. We need to remember that. Now he's going to go from the all to the each, each individual. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's not just that God is God overall. He still notices the individuals in the body. The individuals are not lost in the all. That, that's, that's a distinction of the Christian faith for many of the Eastern religions. Uh, the ultimate goal of many Eastern religions is for the individual to get lost within the all. But what happens in the Bible is Jesus says things like, if you lose your life, you'll find it. In other words, if you surrender to him, you'll find what, what living was, was meant to be all about. And it says grace was given to each one of us. Right here, it's not saving grace, but it's serving grace. We all have a part to play in the body of Christ in our world. That is so important for believers to understand. Each of us has a part to play. Verse 8 he says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, how many of you are hearing that verse, and you're like, oh, hold on, Paul, you just lost me. Like, what are you doing? He's quoting from Psalm 68. It was a psalm in the Old Testament about a conquering king returning to Jerusalem and receiving gifts as a victorious king. And then sharing those gifts with, with the people that he reigned over. Why is Paul quoting it? He's quoting it because he believes it foreshadows Jesus, who he's going to talk about here in verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, let's, let's bring this all together. You got this conquering king centuries before coming back to Jerusalem and sharing gifts, the booty of war with, with his subjects, right? Now Paul's saying that's what Jesus did. And you know the cool thing? You know when the Jews would often read that psalm about the conquering king and his gifts? Pentecost. Pentecost. You remember what happened to the New Testament church as the Jews were celebrating that? Christ gave the gift of the Spirit to the church. God worked it that way according to his plan. In the book of John, Jesus said, it's better for you if I go. I descended to the earth. I was with you. But I died and rose again. I went back to heaven. He said, it's better for you if I go so that I can send you the Spirit. What a gift. God himself, and the, the Spirit gives us gifts. Jesus gives us gifts. Verse 11 says, he, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Ever wonder why did God give us the Spirit? One, to give us power in our witness, but two, to give us gifts to use within the church. Why gifts? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but I want to look at those different gifts real quickly. He starts with apostles and prophets. Some of you guys want me to go real deep into a debate about, is he talking about gifts that still go on today, or was that just back then? I'm going to do it real shortly. I'd encourage you to study it. But in Ephesians 2.20, Paul said the apostles and prophets were foundational to the church, and Christ was the cornerstone. I believe as he's talking about apostles, he is talking specifically here about men who saw the risen Christ and went out as witnesses to that. Many of whom wrote our New Testament. So their ministry continues today in the New Testament that we have. When you read Matthew or John, you are receiving the benefit of the apostles. Prophets, I believe the same thing. When Paul is talking here, he's talking about prophets who were key before the New Testament was written to speak the word of God as they got it directly from him. We still benefit from that as we read our Bibles. Whatever you happen to believe about those gifts, I do want to give you one clear warning. If someone comes to you today and says, I'm an apostle or I'm a prophet, and they say something to you that differs from what the Bible says, I'd encourage you to follow the advice of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings when he said, fly, you fools. Run away because the Bible is our benchmark. You hear anything from anyone, no matter what they call themselves, that goes against that. Run the other way. Evangelists, these, these I believe are people who are especially gifted at sharing the good news of Jesus. What it means that he came to die and, and rise again for our sins and have a relationship with him. If you met people like that, maybe you think of Billy Graham or Luis Palau on a big scale. I'm thankful for people like that. There are other people who, who are just particularly gifted at sharing it in a, in a small situation, maybe one-on-one. Or maybe writing about it in a way that speaks to the lost. I'm thankful for these people. Because I'll admit, even though we're all called to, to share the good news, and that's important to know here. We can't leave it just to the evangelists. The New Testament says we're all to make disciples. I'm thankful for them. This is not one of my gifts. I, every time I evangelize, and maybe you feel this too, I am so very aware of my weakness. I share the good news of Jesus, and, and I think this would be true even of the evangelists. I, I shared this week with a family member over the phone, and even got to the place where this family member prayed the sinner's prayer. And, and I came out of the situation just with all these questions. Lord, did they understand for real, or were they just doing that because I was hoping they would, or... And just this dependence upon God that said, God, please water the seeds that were planted. Only you know what's going on in their heart, but please draw them to salvation. I don't believe it's one of my gifts. I'm thankful for people that have that gift. He goes on to talk about the pastor teacher. And I believe this is one gift because there's not two thes, there's one. Pastors, teachers. He's talking about those whose job it is to tend and care for the flock. Primary tools, the Word of God. And this is a gift that I believe some have, maybe not, not even having an official office in the church, but, man, they, they shepherd God's people and they, they feed them and protect them using the Word of God. But why does he give these gifts? Did you notice in verse 12, to equip the saints, that's every believer, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Do you believe that? Like if you really believe that, when you come to a moment like this where you're tuned in online, you, what you're going to believe is that this preaching and teaching is not the end of the ministry for the week. It's the beginning. It's like the halftime talk but before you go back out into the game and, and get on the field and do what God has called you to do. So what if every time we heard a teaching from God's word, we all ask, what does this look like in action in my life? What's at least one thing I need to do in response to this message? That, that's the more biblical position. This word equip, when it says pastors and teachers and all these others, 
are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's a cool word in the Greek. It was used when fishermen mended their nets. It's the same word. When they mended their nets, it's the same word we have for equip here. They got their nets ready for their intended purpose. What if everybody who listened to the teaching from God's word saw themselves as one of those, those nets and they're getting equipped and, and then you leave the message saying, all right, I'm ready to go back in the water and do some fishing. I'm ready to go back out there and live a full life in Jesus and bring others along for the ride. Maybe you look at that list of gifts and maybe, maybe you say, I, I've got one of those. Maybe some of you say, well, none of those gifts are who I am. Listen, what I want to tell you is those are not the only gifts given to the church. The Bible says all of us have been given a gift for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12.4 Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what if every one of you believers saw yourselves as a gift of Christ to the church? Now, as soon as I wrote that question, I realized that could go two ways. You come in like, yeah, I'm God's gift to the church, man. These people ought to be thankful for me. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, wow, this place is not just about what I can get. This group of people is not just about what's in it for me, but how does God want me to be a blessing to these people? What gifts has he given me to do that? When we start to think that way, maybe the words of Peter resonate with us. First Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Maybe you know what your gift is. Maybe you're hearing this and this is new to you. I'd encourage you, there's different lists in the New Testament. Romans 12 has one. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. I'll tell you one gift I saw at work this week. It was the gift of giving in our church. It all started as I, I met with a young man who had to lose some shifts at work because he was sick. And as I met with him, he told me he wasn't sure where groceries were going to come from come the beginning of April because he lost those shifts. The very next day, someone in our church called me and said, hey, I just picked up a couple boxes of groceries just for the purpose of sharing them with anybody who has needs. Do you know of anybody? And I was like, oh, my goodness. I just talked to a guy yesterday. And long story short, his wife went to see this family that had bought the groceries and, and took what they needed and also took some to share with somebody else that needed some. That gift of giving blessed that family physically, and it also encouraged that young man in his walk with God. But I want to encourage you, whether your gift is giving or, or teaching or serving or encouragement, you have a part to play in this thing. The goal of everybody using their gifts to build up the body, again, is, is unity. But not just unity, it's maturity. Listen to verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When he says until we all attain, that word is used in Acts nine times for when Paul and his buddies reached their destination. A couple weeks ago, before the world went crazy, our family took a trip to Utah to see some of the parks up there. And that first day, after driving for seven or eight hours, it felt so good to attain our destination at that hotel for the day. Ah, now, don't, Like I said, don't judge us for taking a trip. That was before everything went this way. We got back and stepped into things as they are, but you know that feeling, what it's like to reach a destination. Paul's telling us our destination as a body of Christ, it's unity. 
together. That's why he says unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's all built around him. This is not unity that throws out the truth about Jesus. It's unity built on that. But it's also maturity. To mature manhood, what's that look like? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a mouthful that means we become mature as we start living more like Christ. Then he's going to give us two contrasts. We're supposed to be mature. We're supposed to be growing. The contrasts are children and a grown-up. And as I've thought about this, there, there is no staying still in the Christian life. Okay, maybe you've discovered that. You're either growing more like Christ or, or you're going backwards. It, it's almost like we're driving up a snowy hill in this world. And, and you've got to keep those tires spinning. Otherwise, you're going to slide down the hill. It's either growing or becoming more immature. I, I saw a testimony this week from a friend in our church as he texted me about how this growing can be an exciting thing. We all have room to grow and it can be an exciting thing. He said, I feel a lot closer to God out of the blue. God knows I have been struggling to fully surrender to him. And today I feel like I finally did. Basically, I had a Job moment. I heard of God and knew of him, but today I see him before my own eyes. <laughs> I texted him back and I said, man, that is awesome. And you've had moments like that, but you know what he texted me a couple days later? He said, please pray that I keep my focus on Jesus. Why? Because it's a daily thing. It's not just a moment here, a moment there. It's a daily reality. We're either driving up that snowy slope or, or we're sliding back down. Each of us are doing our part. Unity and maturity are key. Here's the contrast. Here's the, the, the child so that we may no longer be children. Say, wait a second. Didn't Jesus say we were supposed to have the faith of a child? Yes. Yes. That's that faith that, that takes him at his word. Even when all around us doesn't make sense, we take our Father at His word. Okay? This is something different here. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now we see what He's talking about. The, the word pictures in the Greek are really vivid. If you think of a wavy ocean and you think of a cork or a small boat that has no control on the waves, that's what it means to be a, a child here, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Uh, Plato, the, the Greek philosopher, used some of these words to describe a top that's spinning. Some used it to describe dizziness. Uh, led astray by human cunning. Human cunning literally means trickery with the dice, or in other words, to deceive. What's he talking about? He's, he's talking about we're, we're immature if every new thing we hear, even if it disagrees with what we know in the Bible, we say, yeah, maybe I should go with that. And then next week, it's a different one. And then next week, it's a different one. And we never settle down on the truth of God's word, so we're tossed about. He says, when we're all doing our part, when we're grown in unity and maturity based on knowledge of the Son of God, that will become a thing of the past. We'll, we'll grow mature. So what does mature, maturity look like? Verse 15. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That's how we become mature. We, we grow into Christ. And when he says speaking the truth in love, it's actually a participle. The word speak is not in the Greek. What it says literally is we are to be truthing in love. You're to be a truther. I'm to be a truther. It's so much more than just saying things that are true. It's living in a way that reflects the truth that we know. Are you a truther? Many in this world, as we started, 
ask the question, what is truth? If I'm supposed to be a truther, what is truth? One man told a story of how our postmodern world defines truth in, in, in story form. He, he talked about a Kentucky rifleman who was legendary in his town for his accurate marksmanship. They would go out into the woods and they would see his, his bullseyes on the trees and in every one his bullet was right in the center. Somebody once asked him, how, how do you do that? And he said, it's simple. I shoot the tree and then I, I draw my bullseye around my hole. <laughs> so a lot of people in this world are doing. They're, they're doing what they want and then they define truth based on that. But deep down inside, most of us know we need something outside of ourselves because we've seen our ability to be deceived. There was a, a plague a while back called the Representative and in one scene in the play, there was a Nazi officer who, who had a troubled conscience about what, what the Nazis were doing. So he went to see a priest. And the priest said to the Nazi officer, what does your conscience tell you, Herr Gerstein? His reply, conscience? Who can rely on that? The conscience is a highly dubious seat of judgment. I'm sure that Hitler is following the call of his conscience too. No, I seek an answer outside myself. Deep down inside, many of us know that. We need the truth outside of ourselves that, that comes in God. One man defined truth this way. He said, worship is telling the truth about God. Confession is telling the truth about ourselves. And discipleship is taking the truth and applying it to the situation I'm in right now. I like that. It can be scary to believe the truth and live it out. Because often there's consequences, right? That's why one man wrote a prayer that said this, Deliver us from the cowardice that shrinks from new truths. Deliver us from the laziness that is content with half-truths and from the arrogance that thinks it knows all truth. We are to grow up into the head who is Christ. And while this is not exactly what Paul had in mind, one man painted a vivid picture that I don't think you'll forget. If, if any of you have had children, you know when they're first born, their, their head is abnormally large for their body. Correct? But if things go along as scheduled, that body eventually catches up and, and grows to a proportion that makes sense with the head. He said, keep that in mind. As, as we're growing, as we're part of the body of Christ, let, let's grow into the head. But it's not just truth. It goes back to where we started with those four ingredients in the smoothie that, that finish with love. It's truthing in love. Truth and love are both two sides of the same coin. I heard a story about love that, that struck me this week. It was about a preacher who preached a whole sermon about love. Later that week, he was working on some, some concrete on his driveway. He went inside, and, and he came back out and uh, found a little boy in the neighborhood drawing his name in, in the wet concrete. And he, he began to berate the kid. Who, who raised you? What were you raised by wolves? What are you thinking, you stupid little kid? Get out of here. Only trouble was somebody from the preacher's church was on the sidewalk across the street. And he asked the preacher, hey, uh, preacher, what, what's the deal? Didn't you just uh, preach a sermon about love? And the preacher said, well, it's, it's uh, easier to love in the abstract than it is in the concrete. <laughs> I thought, isn't that true? It's one thing to talk about it, but, but when we are hurt and wronged in this world, that, that's when it's tested, the truth in love. Final verse, looking back to Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are to grow into him, but now Paul is saying the growth comes from him as we connect with the head Jesus. 
And if you, if maybe inside you hear that and you say, I, I'm not sure I totally believe in this invisible connection with, with this head I can't see. I was thinking this week that there are many people every day sit in their homes and connect to Google through an invisible wireless internet that they still doubt the, the possibility of an invisible connection with, with Jesus. Which do we connect to more? I think it's important to spend time connecting to him and, and hearing what he would say in the face of what's going on around us. When, when he talks about joints here, ligaments is another word for it. I learned this week that the word religion in Greek, you see that L-I-G in the middle, actually comes from the word ligaments, that which holds together. And I know today religion often has a bad connotation. And sometimes it should when we're talking about dead religion or man-made religion that leaves Christ out. But there is such a thing in Christ as pure religion. James talks about it. He says the pure religion cares for the widow and the orphan. But if you think about pure religion in Christ and you realize that connection root, that which holds us together. You go back to all those ones. I'm going to share in a moment how we can practice that with a family I, I met this week, I talked to this week, to care for an orphan. But I want to close. He's talking about the head and the body. The biblical picture is believers in Christ are all part of the body. We are not meant to do this alone. Over 40 times in Paul's letters, he uses the phrase one another. We're to love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another. You can't do that on your own. In fact, John Calvin said anybody who tries, he used the word insane. You're insane to try it apart from the body. Is that strong? Yes. Is it biblical? Yes. We are to do this together. Now, as we close, I, I wonder if, if any of you hear this and you say, wow, Paul, this all sounds really good and it's good for the church and look forward to when we can get back together in person and, and uh, see one another and practice some of this in person. But what about the lost world out there? Are, are you forgetting about them? Think, think about who Paul's writing to. The, the church at Ephesus. How did they become the church at Ephesus? Paul went there as a missionary and shared Christ and the gospel spread. That's implied in everything Paul writes. He knows that as the church grabs onto our calling, our unity, and everything we're called to, it's then that we're able to make the difference in the world that we're called to make. You think about all these parts working together. One man speculated, did Paul have the, the picture of an athlete running for the finish line, every part of his body working together uh, to reach that goal. What is our goal? What do, what do we say at the church next door? To live a full life in Jesus and bring others along for the ride. Let's pray.